Welcome to CF Speaks, a podcast produced by faculty and students from the College of Central Florida. In this two-part episode, we are going to uh, release a uh, virtual talk and panel discussion of Spike Lee's phenomenal 1989 film, Do the Right Thing. The first episode is going to feature a uh, talk by Dr. Jana Jones of Stetson University, and the second episode will feature a uh, panel discussion uh, featuring uh, Wendy Adams, professor at the College of Central Florida, as well as Bud Dees, Julie W. McCammon, and Amira Sims, who are each assistant professors at CF. Um, the second episode will also feature um, a lot of student feedback and reactions to the film. Just a little heads up, if you have youngsters in the car with you while you're listening, this episode uh, does feature strong language. I just want to say thank you for joining us for this discussion. Um, I want to thank the Humanities Department for partnering partnering with Student Life and SAV to bring this um, very important dis discussion to campus. Awesome. Thank you, Dominique. And again, welcome to everyone. Just a reminder. Again, we are recording this event today and we're so excited that you all are here. Uh, we have a great speaker for you. And just wanna remind you, this is a really tough topic. It can be a really hurtful topic. And we just wanna remember that we are all here today uh, for an open discussion, uh, an unplugged conversation as we like to call it. And just remember to always be respectful uh, to those of us that are here in the discussion. So just those little reminders, just some Zoom etiquette. If you are not speaking, make sure that you mute your microphone to avoid any feedback. And if you're comfortable, we'd love to see your beautiful faces. So be sure to turn on your video. But if you're not comfortable, you can, of course, leave it as is. Again, welcome to everyone. And I'm going to turn it over to Professor Wendy Adams. Hello, everyone. Um, it is my honor to introduce our panelists who um, will be contributing today. We have Dr. Patrick Coggins from Stetson University. We have Bud Dees from CF, right? Digital Media Professor. Look up his classes if you're interested. Uh, Julie McCammon from um, the Humanities Social Sciences Department. Amara Sims from Humanities Social Sciences. And um, then also our SAB representative, Dominique. Um, they will help the conversation flow with the conversation if needed. And then we'll also have a special time for them to be, um, to talk at the end. We also uh, have Madison on, Wendy, just a reminder, oh, Madison, Madison Pensinger. Oh, okay, I thought maybe that was replaced by Dominique, sorry. Because <laughs> I had Madison on my list. Okay, sorry, Madison, I apologize. Um, so I now I'd like to introduce our film scholar and speaker. It's my pleasure to do so. Um, uh, Dr. Jones is a mentor, important mentor of mine and a film scholar. 
Uh, she's a professor of creative media and film in the School of Communication at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. Um, a 20th century historian, Jones scholarship focuses on the history of cinema going, historic movie theaters, amateur filmmaking, public expositions, architectural preservation, urban and suburban history and public art. Um, so she's also the author of many articles and um, books as well, too numerous to mention, but I do want to mention two, especially for my film students there. Um, she has two books uh, on, about film and cultural studies. The Past is a Moving Picture, Preserving the 20th Century on Film, and The Southern Movie Palace, Rise, Fall, and Resurrection. So everyone, please welcome Jana. She's going to virtual clap, and she's going to start with a short talk and uh, then have kind of open session of question and answers and comments, um, and then uh, we will talk to the panelists. So everybody, welcome Janet. Hi, you guys. Um, thank you so much, everyone, and thank you for inviting me. I am um, what Wendy said, a 20th century historian. So in a lot of ways, I I can't help but look at it from and kind of give you context today about um, 1989 because um, you know I'm interested in what the viewers were thinking in 1989 when they saw this. So let me um, see where to go. So this is just a little preview of what I'm going to be. I'm going to be showing you three clips. Um, we'll start with the opening scene um, with Rosie Perez, um, Fight the Power. We're going to talk a little bit about um, Fight the Power. We're going to look at some of the lyrics. Um, and then I'll, I'll provide a historical and cultural context. What were people, what was going on in 1989? Ah, for some of us, we were alive. But some of us, we were not. That was a long time ago. So um, so to just offer you some context, because again, that's what I do. I'm a 20th century historian. So I'm kind of looking at it from that way. And then we'll look at, on the second clip, Radio Raheem's Love and Hate. And that's kind of the philosophical moment of this film. And then the final scene on the Sal and Mookie. Um, and I think it's important to look at the film together. I'm a, um, a uh, you know, historian of cinema going too, which means that we watch these things together too. You know, it's, it's, it's great to be able to watch it on your laptop, um, but it's such an important film. And so to just have these, a few moments of uh, experiencing the film together. Well, so let's... Um, Let's just look and listen, maybe turn up the volume, you know. And um, you, when, for a lot of you, this is the first time you've seen this film. So you didn't know what to expect. And you may not even remember the opening scene by now. And so let's look at it now with, with uh, you know, new eyes and um, looking at this the second time and see what happens.
most, but he never meant shit to me as he straight out racist and sucker was simple and plain. Some of the interesting things, you know, the choices that Spike Lee is making here is that this song is conceived of by him. Um, and he um, met up with um, Public Enemy and um, wanted this as a musical theme for Do the Right Thing. So um, it was released as a single on Motown Records, which is a Detroit um, organization, um, in the summer of 1989. So the year right when the film was being released. And um, prior to... Public Enemy, you know, this film intimidates people. Public Enemy intimidated people as well because they were bringing social and political relevance to hip-hop, which had been um, much less edgy um, prior to um, their work. And so let's just look at it for a minute here about the song. This is just a... um, just one, you know, bit of the song, but um, maybe when you were, you know, watching the film for the first time, you weren't really paying attention to the lyrics. And I think it really gives us a lot of information. Um, so I'll just read a little bit of it. Elvis was a hero to most, but he never mentioned to me, you see, straight up racist that sucker was, simple and plain, motherfucker. Kim and John Wayne, because I'm black and I'm proud, I'm ready and I'm hype, plus I'm amped. Most of my heroes don't appear on no stands. Sample will look back, you look and find nothing but rednecks for 400 years. If you check, don't worry, be happy was the number one jam. Damn if I say you can't slap me right here. Get it, let's get this party started right, right on, come on. What we got to say how do people know delay, make everybody see in order to fight the powers that be? So, you know, that's a pretty strong statement um, right from the beginning, um, right when they're just opening, running the first credit. And um, I don't think there's much that's ambiguous <laughs> there. I think, um, you know, um, and I love the line, most of my heroes don't appear on the stamp. So, um, and also notice the nothing but rednecks for 400 years, if you check, don't worry, be happy was a number one jam. We're going to get back to that in a second. So, um, wow. so clear, yeah, so clearly Spike Lee and Public Enemy were setting the tone and framing this film. Now, as we go on, we're going to talk a little bit about fight the power and do the right thing. And how can these two things coexist? So again, as I said, I'm a 20th century historian, so I look at things, you know, backwards. So I thought we would just take a minute and look at the cultural context of 1989. So Republican George Bush Sr. becomes president. Um, he was a, um, he's the father of George Bush Jr. that maybe you are more familiar with. And um, he was this, um, Ronald Reagan had just, been president for eight years and he was um 
he could have been on that list of John Wayne and uh, and Elvis and stuff. He he didn't do a lot for um, you know he did a let's say he did a lot for white wealthy people. Perhaps that story sounds familiar to you. But um, he but George Bush was a little a little better, but not great. Um, Democrat um, David Dinkins was elected the New York City's first African American mayor. And so, um, so there's a king bit of progress there. Douglas Wilder becomes the first African American governor. The Berlin Wall comes down, and this is crazy. The first GPS satellite was put into orbit. So we think, you know, we can barely do anything without GPS now, right? To get us from one place to another, it was put into the orbit 31 years ago. Um, in terms of popular culture, the best film of the year was Rain Man. The best TV series of the year was L.A. Law. And the best song of the year was Don't Worry, Be Happy. Now, I would so like to be able to, um, for you to hear this, and you're not going to be able to, but you'll just, um, but let's look at um, a minute of this. Okay, so Bobby McFerrin's also African-American, you know, like public enemy, like, uh, you know, um, and um, focused on do the right thing. But we have a very different notion with don't worry, be happy than fight the power, right? And so my point here is I can actually talk since you can't hear it anyway, but I can hear it anyway. So, um, this is a, you think about that opening scene and the power of Rosie Perez and the, and the power of that song. And now, and now you think about the title of this, look at this very, um, you know, not fighting the power, but just don't worry about anything. Don't worry. Be happy. And so I think it's just a really interesting um, tension that 1990, 1989 is um, holding, you know, it's, I mean, there's, we see progress, but we, I mean, it's not a bad song or anything, but it's not fight the power either. So, um, Shannon, we have a question that came um, in the chat, if we could ask that in reference to the Fight the Power song. Uh, mm -hmm. One of our students, Emma, wanted to know, do we feel that with Spike Lee choosing Fight the Power as the song for the theme, is that him communicating that the right thing to do is to fight the power? Any thoughts well, on that's that? such a brilliant question and one um, for us to certainly think about. And I think that there may be absolutely that's an important message um from spike lee but then we remember that it's called do the right thing <laughs> and so our that so there again is this tension you know that we're dealing with and so yes definitely um that is part and of course it should be um part of his message but i don't think it's his whole message Okay, so let's look at, um, again, just from looking backwards, I found this, um, this is a Washington Post survey about the racial climate in um, the 80s. Well, this is actually, it was published in 1989. So um, just some questions. Um, 
Um, so, um, you know, this is a survey of like 1,300 people. And so um, in 1989, 44% of African-Americans said there's more races in the country in 1989 than four or five years ago, up from 34% in 1981. Um, that's asking whites the same question. 23% of whites reported an increase in racism down from 26% in 1981. So you see those 44, 23, you know, you know, you, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, numbers being thrown around with the election and stuff. You know that that 20, 21% difference is, is really rather large. 75% um, of African-Americans said that African-Americans are not achieving equality as fast as they could because many whites don't want them to get ahead. But only 43% of whites agreed with that. 69% of African-Americans said African-Americans have worse jobs, income, and housing than whites because of discrimination. But only 46% of whites believe that to be true. And 40% of African-Americans says it's very important to live in a racially mixed neighborhood, but only 21% of whites says it's very important to live in a racially mixed neighborhood. So, you know, you look at that, that's at least 20%, you know, variation for each, um, for each, you know, category. So, you know, the year, so think about, you know, if you were a, a, a alive in 1989 and you were going to movies, um, you know, how would you respond differently perhaps to this movie based on your perceptions prior to the time you saw the movie? And so um, we were having an interesting conversation before some of you came in um, today about the reviews um, from the, when it opened I honestly didn't even do that. I didn't think to do it. I was just in my own little world here. But, you know, there were, there were mixed reviews ahead. And, and I mean, you know, um, at the time of this film, and I will tell you, too, that it was snubbed by the Oscars, which is no surprise. Because, one, it's super innovative, and they're not. And, two, um, they're racist. You know, and so um, it's and, and Hollywood is as well. The whole, you know, I, I mean, women, you know, white guys have just run the show. So so just imagine, you know, this um, kind of period of time and how um, people were approaching this film in very different um, ways. And, the, and people were afraid it was going to incite riots and stuff. So the other thing I wanted to just talk about kind of historically, you know, unfortunately, this was inspired by a true story. Um, it was in 1986, and Michael Griffith was from Trinidad, and he was murdered by a white mob, a bunch of white teenagers. And he was chased onto the highway by a group of white kids and was hit by a car and killed. And two days after the event, three local teenagers were arrested and charged with secondary murder. 
which as we know, you know, in current times, that's not a guarantee. You can, it seems like you can murder someone and, um, and if you're white and they're um, African-American, then um, you can get away with it. Um, three white teens were convicted of manslaughter and in total nine people were convicted of charges related to his death. So, you know, we had quite a summer with uh, George Floyd and the Black Lives Movement. And, um, and unfortunately, I can only sit here and tell you that this is not a new phenomenon, as we all know. But um, this film was, you know, it's so timely. And it's also historically so relevant as well. And so, um, in this scene, as you recall, Radio Rahim, this is the soliloquy. This is Radio Rahim's um, moment here to really express what I believe is um, in Spike Lee's heart. And um, these, these, uh, this love and this hate, you know, I think that this is, um, you know, uh, just take a look at this moment because Radio Rahim is breaking the fourth wall. He's no longer, you are now in the place of Mookie. And he is, he is now addressing you. Love. These five fingers, they go straight to the soul of man. The writing, the hand of love. The story of life is this. Static. One hand is always fighting the other hand. And the left hand is kicking much ass. I mean, it looks like the right hand love is finished. But hold on, stop the presses. The right hand's coming back. Yeah, he got the left hand on the ropes now. That's right. Yeah. Ooh, it's a devastating right and hate is hurt. He's down. Ooh, ooh, left hand hate KO'd by love. And what Radio Rahim says is that there, from beginning of time, there is always this, um, love and hate of both in, in humans and that, but ultimately love will win out. Now, um, I doubt that's a pretty tough and ironic position being that we know that Radio Rahim, um, is killed. Um, right. This is a scene right, um, before they go to the pizzeria. So, um, um, so in, in his soliloquy, in a kind of the heart of the matter, I don't think Spike Lee's trying to tell us what the, uh, all the answers are. He's exposing what the issues are and how real, this is kind of like lived experience. And I know some of you have lived this experience. And so by breaking the fourth wall, Radio Haim is like you, you know, he's confronting you. And in my opinion, it's the moral center of the film and really explains the crisis of humanity. God, I mean, some of you probably think right now, like, you know, the stuff that's been going on with the election, the stuff, the hatred, the, eh, eh, you know, you see that, like, there's the people of love. And then there are the people of anger and bitter and hatred and, um, 
we also see in this film that the hatred, the ugliness is in the home. Um, the scene with Rosie Perez and her baby yelling with her mom and stuff, that kills me that that kid is being held by, you know, it's just all anger. It's anger at the um, Koreans. It's anger at the Italians. The Ita- you know, it's anger. It's, the, it's everybody's pissed off, right? And so, and part of the reason all those people are pissed off is because of um, their rights are constantly trampled on and they believe they deserve more than, than they are correct, of course, than they, um, than they are getting from, from the world. And so um, ultimately this is, you know, this is kind of at the center of the world of human beings. And um, again, I'm not saying nothing's getting I don't think he's resolving anything he's exposing and he's making us experience this, you know, you could say, you know, who is this film really for? And I think it's for everyone because, you know, it, the film, it, 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 it either you like understand the experience because you lived it or you're being asked to, um, kind of live through it through cinema, which is a beautiful thing. And this is kind of coming now, you know, we've moved from the beginning to the kind of the moral center, the moral universe, to this very fascinating ending. As you know, Mookie threw the garbage can through Sal's place, ultimately because um, of all the frustration, including just the heat and, um, and, you know, it started with the representation of, they wanted representation on the wall, the hall of fame at Sal's, um, to look like them because they're the customers. And Sal's like, you know, this is my place and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do it. And he's pissed off too, you know? And so, um, so anyway, uh, you know, they're like, you take the money, you take the money. And then they start saying, are you, and then the cell says, are you okay? And one's like, well, man, you know, it's really hot. I, I don't feel that great, you know? And, and then he's like, dude, I gotta go. Cause I, uh, I gotta go take, I gotta go see my son. And so this is this moment. I mean, again, um, Spike Lee chose this as the ending, um, you know, where they're just, there's so much hurt here, but there's also some compassion for one another in this moment. You got your fucking pay. Now leave me alone, huh? Sal, my salary is two fifty a week, all right? I owe you 50 bucks. Keep it. You keep it. You keep it. You keep it. No, you keep it. You keep it. I don't believe this shit. Believe it. Are you sick? How's a motherfucker? I'm all right, though. Well, they say it's even going to get hotter today. What are you going to do with yourself? Make that money, get paid. So I got to go see my son. If it's all right with you, 
you know, here, I, I told you, I absolutely have no on, um, answers for you. Um, but, you know, how do we do the right thing? How do we fight the power? How do we do the right thing and fight the power? And how do we begin to foster civility and community? And God, you know, I mean, um, I mean, most of the people I know <laughs> do foster it all the time. I mean, there's um, lovely people, you know, um, but there's the love and there's the hate. And it's, it's a very complicated thing. And I think we all kind of just have to start. Um, I mean, there's so much, you know, again, I'm not, I don't have any answers, but that I know for myself to just begin right here with, you know, that um, and kindness and compassion. Um, and of course it is a, it has to be politics. It has to be activism and all that stuff. But at the, at the general level of this humanity, you know, I got to start right here. You know, what is it, you know, act local, think universal or whatever that um, is. And so, um, so I'm, that, that is my allotted time. So I'm going to, um, you know, stop this slideshow right now. And, um, Jana, we've got now um, answers, questions that I don't have the answers for. We but, have, um, there's been some conversation in the chat, Jana, um, about when Mookie threw the trash can through the window, that yes. some of us, some of us saw that as him directing the crowd away from hurting Sal and his family. So maybe that was really the right thing to do. So do you have any, any thoughts on that? <laughs> I think that that's a, a really positive um, interpretation of that. And um, I think that, um, you know, I, I think there is no, there is no hero here. These are just people. This is just, you know, what the hero, I'd say what the hero is in my, is the community is the is the people with the eyes on the street taking care of the kids and you know the coming and going and these people that somehow feel supported um in some ways um you know it's better than i think being sequestered and not seeing other people's lived experiences but um but as far as the people go you know they're all crappy and they're all and they've all got good stuff in them too they're like really you know real people and so yes I think it's possible that um, Mookie did that for the right reasons but there's probably another part of him that just wanted to be the guy that threw the trash can through you know he got carried away too people people get carried away with their anger and to, it goes places I don't think they expect expected it to happen that way. That's one of the things I appreciate about the film the most is everybody's complicated. Lee doesn't let us off the hook with um, completely two-dimensional bad guys and good guys. Um, even the police officers, which are the least sympathetic uh, characters, they still have their moments of humanity that he shows when they don't, when they side with the kids versus the Italian guy who they're shooting the water on and his um, convertible that moment, they show a little compassion from when the other police officer tells, tries to tell him to stop. That's enough with that chokehold. But 
Um, but then obviously, you know, they, um, they kill Radio Rahim. And, but it's one of the things I appreciate the most about the film is that that's how people are. No saints, no sinners. College of Central Florida offers equal access and opportunity in employment admissions and educational activities. The college will not discriminate on the basis of race, color, ethnicity, religion, gender, pregnancy, age, marital status, national origin, genetic information, sexual orientation, gender identity, veteran status, or disability status in its employment practices or in the admission and treatment of students. Recognizing that sexual harassment constitutes discrimination on the basis of gender and violates this policy statement, the college will not tolerate such conduct. CF Speaks would like to thank the CF Foundation for their generous support. Please subscribe to CF Speaks on your preferred podcast platform to hear all past and future episodes. Thank you for listening.